This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor here at the Peninsula Pulse. Today, I'm joined by Grace Johnson, our Lit and Special Issues editor here. Grace, thanks for hopping in the podcast studio with me. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) You sound super stoked. I'm very stoked. (laughs) Stoked is a word you use a lot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming deadline for the HAL Prize for Lit and Photography that we sponsor each year here at the Peninsula Pulse. And then we will have a special reading from George Harmon, who was our nonfiction winner in last year's contest and wrote a story that near and dear to my heart about his days in the newspaper industry in Chicago. And I think that's a, it's just a really great story. I was really happy that we were able to get George in here to read that for us. So we'll get to that a little later in the podcast in just a few minutes. But I wanted to start by talking to you, Grace, about this year's HAL Prize and some of the changes we've implemented for this year's prize and this year's book that we'll be putting out later in November. Yeah, for sure. So the biggest thing to note is the deadline for submissions is September 16th, which is a Friday, mid-September, end of the day. (laughs) So you have all of the September 16th to get it in, but that is coming up. So don't forget that. And then we have a bunch of different categories that could fit writers of a lot of different stages. Mm -hmm. So we take submissions in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry which, you know, a lot of things can fit under those categories, honestly. (laughs) And then we have our photography contest, and we've changed that a little bit this year to kind of, you know, hone in on um, the different styles of photography a little bit better. And we have some great support this year from Peninsula School of Art and Kathy Hoke. They've always been involved in the contest, but they really wanted to get more involved and, you know, more hands on, more hands on. And Kathy was actually really great with us in Mm -hmm. kind of giving some feedback on the photography contest. It's always been just open-ended, right? So it's one category could be anything, could Mm -hmm. be pictures you took in Europe, could be pictures in Door County, sunsets, landscapes, people, all these different things could be black and white color, nature, which is great. But we heard from our photography judges and from Kathy, the judges told us it's really hard to judge a nature photograph against a journalistic style photograph versus a drone photograph. So Mm -hmm. they wanted us to put in some different categories to break that up. And Kathy had suggested something similar. So she helped us. And this year's photography judge, Lars Topelman of Ephraim, helped us kind of figure out a new way. So what are Mm -hmm. some of these new categories? Yeah. So this year for photography, um, you can submit into landscape and nature, people, animals, black and white or drone. Excellent. And then the prize structure is going to be a little bit different for photography. We will have an overall winner, you know, your first place, but then we will also pick the top image from each category as well. Okay. So So there's five, technically five first place categories and one Mm -hmm. big overall winner. So kind of give the judges a little more niche content to to judge and, and really put apples to apples as much as possible. And and maybe get more submissions from people who are like, oh, now I have a better chance of, at winning, and now I, I know where my stuff fits from a photography exactly. standpoint. Yep. And really proud to have Lars Topelman join us as part of this judging process this year. He is, his photography is 
phenomenal. I got mm-hmm. a chance last spring to sit down with him and go through some of his catalog of his previous work in the kind of in the advertising realm. And it's just it's so much fun to look at and his experiences are were just so interesting to hear about. And we're lucky that he's back in Ephraim and he and his wife run Pearl Wine Cottage. And uh yeah, it's just you know, we're always so fortunate in Door County to have these incredible artists with this incredible backstory and experience that come back to our little town here and mm-hmm. and we can feed off that. Yeah. What else can you tell me about the Hal Prize this year before we move on? Judges, in case you need to know judges, we have <laughs> our fiction judge. Uh, his name is Joshua Philip Johnson. He is from Minnesota. He teaches at Minnesota Morris. A lot of his focus is on the environment and speculative fiction. His focus is fantasy. So his day uh, debut novel was a eco fantasy about you know a lot of the uh, environment up in his region, which is really cool. We have Angela Palm Hopkins for nonfiction this year. Her book Riverine was selected by Oprah as a powerful memoir by powerful women, which is really awesome. And then Adrian Mateka is our poetry judge this year, and he was the former poet laureate for Indiana. And if um, anyone listening attended the Washington Island Lit Festival last year, he was also one of the featured writers, and I got to go see him, and he, you know, read his poetry and stuff, and he was really cool and, you know, very (laughs) engaged with everybody. So we're excited to have them all this year. Yeah, that's a great slate of judges. I know a lot of our writers just like the opportunity to see their stuff get judged amongst so many other great writers, but also mm-hmm. from those particular judges. So that's one of the draws of the contest. We get a lot of help putting that together from Jared Santac and Right On Door County, mm-hmm. which is a co-sponsor of the contest, and also helps us put this all together so that we can create this new... I always struggle with this. It's not a book. Mm-hmm. What do you... The, the periodical, the 8142 yeah. review. Yeah, I mean... I think, you know, like technically if it's under periodical, what we're aiming towards, and this is only a second year, but literary review style. And actually the the physical book was based off of what are called MOOCs, they call them in Japan. So it's, you know, a mix of book and magazine. Mm-hmm. So you have more of like the size that you would find in a book versus like a magazine, but you can still kind of use similar like paper and okay. things like that. But it's, you want it to feel a little more substantial and the reading experience is a little bit different. And this idea of collecting these into a format like this was all spurred by you and brought forth. So thank you for doing that. And it's yeah. a great boon to our submitters because, you know, if you, if you win the contest, you end up getting published in this thing. And I know that for me, the first time I got published in a paper, the first time I saw a byline, like something in print that wasn't just my notebook was a a huge moment for me as a young writer. And I know that a lot of the people who submit to us, some of them are experienced writers who've been published all over the place. Some of them are people just getting published for the first time in their lives and maybe the only time. And it's really great that we can now offer this opportunity for it to to be in some sort of book form. Yeah, and it stands out a little more. And like I said, it's only the second year, and I think we're on a a good path. And for me, I really enjoy being in this process where, you know, helping people get published for the first time. Right. As, you know, somebody who's very into reading and books and the whole publishing process, for me, one of the things that I've always really wanted to do in my life is be somebody who can help champion writers. And I think we're doing that. And I hope that we continue to grow this publication, 8142 Review, continue to grow so that we can include more voices, more writers, 
more content to just be able to elevate all of these people. Yeah, I think you make a great point. It is, for me, I, I get a lot of fulfillment out of all the writing I do and, and seeing my own work come out. But it really is such a rewarding thing to help other people get mm -hmm. something published, whether it's one thing ever, whether it's turning them into a consistent writer and contributor or just somebody who's writing for the lit section or entering this contest. So yeah. it's a really fulfilling part of what we do here. For those who are interested, the last year's edition is available for sale. That You can get that at DoorCountyPulse.com. It's available at some bookstores. You can buy it from right on Door County. That is still available. We have a lot of copies, so mm -hmm. buy them and support local writing and, and the continued publishing of this MOOC. And mm -hmm. then where can people, finally, where can they submit to the contest? Mm -hmm. So to submit, you want to go to thehowprize.com. Um, we have a lot of information there. We have a lovely little button at the top that says submit. Want to click that. And then it goes over all of our submission guidelines just in case this is your first time and you don't know the details. We have all of the details on that page. And then you'll have another very large button that will take you to the actual platform that we use to accept submissions because we only accept digital submissions through this platform. It's called Submittable. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. Excellent. So thehalprize.com. Go there if you are interested, if you've just taken photographs and you want to send those in, if you want to take your hand at writing, or if you've been sitting on this piece of writing that you have been waiting to polish up and submit and maybe you think it's good, this is your chance to do it. We really like to see a lot more local contributors as well. We get submissions from all over the place, but halprize.com. And with that, Grace, I wanted you to read the judge's comments about George Harmon's piece, the first place winner in last year's nonfiction. Yeah. So last year, our fiction judge, her name is Faith Adiele, and she was amazing. She gave really good feedback, and we also got to chat with her a little bit when she was up. Yeah, she did a month-long residence yeah. at Right On Door County just this past spring mm -hmm. and also helped teach a, a class and, and part of a conference at Right On Door County. Really interesting mm -hmm. woman with just a, such a wide array of writing credits to her name, writing for the Calm app and yeah. magazines, books, all teaching. Yeah. Cobbles it together like so many writers. Yeah. For sure. Okay, so this is Faith's comments on George Harmon's piece, The Beast That Ate Words, from the 2021 Hell Prize. The Beast That Ate Words is a breathless beast of an essay that reads like fiction. The author captures, in crackling, witty wordplay reminiscent of noir writers, the golden era of newspapers, throwing the reader into a loud, rollicking newsroom surrounded by colorful characters spouting catchy insider lingo and doing their best to deliver a small miracle all the news that's fit to print several times a day. Excellent. She summed us up really well. And with that, we'll leave it up to George Harmon to yeah. read The Beast That Ate Words. This is titled The Beast That Ate Words. Feed the Beast. Each day the newsroom received a mock-up of the next day's issue. A big city newspaper was fat enough every day until the late 1990s to hit the front porch with a thump that made the dog stir. 
The mock-up for that print giant showed ads laid out, sized, and unnamed. Sometimes an ad spot might be marked airline as a warning against putting a crash article next to it. The remainder was blank, the news hole, to be filled with words and pictures, 80 to 120 columns worth, almost all of it produced by our local staff and our bureaus. That beast of a news hole ate words relentlessly, millions of words, every day, far too many to handle with uniform excellence. So the city hall story might have jumbled paragraphs, and below it you might find a wire story on a giant tomato. Axioms such as feed the beast permeated the newsroom. Tinted by gallows humor, they gave the day's work a humble perspective. The sayings went like this. Tomorrow your story will line the bottom of a birdcage. This paper isn't worth wrapping a fish. Flesh it out and fuzz it over. Indicted on page one, found innocent on page 88. Newspapers are dinosaurs, but they sure are fun. Journalism is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. We know who the publisher is, the guy who didn't have time to read the paper today. We don't write articles, we write stories. Edited by Shovel. Good job, kid. You didn't let the facts get in the way of the story. Nice story, kid. Who wrote it for you? Only one of those sayings was true. The news hold appeared every day. Feed the beast. True in the heyday of big city newspapers everywhere. Certainly that was true at the Chicago Daily News, which lived 102 years. It was a prototype and a pace setter. Born late in the 19th century as Chicago's first one-penny newspaper, the Daily News eventually won a national reputation as a writer's newspaper. With a repertorial staff half-daft with literary dreams in the view of Ben Heck, the Daily News boasted a distinctive style emphasizing narrative. In the decades surrounding the turn of the 20th century, it was most widely read of Chicago's many newspapers. Its writers were pivotal to Chicago's literary renaissance. An editor in the 1920s likened it to a daily novel written by a score of Balzacs. Across the pages paraded famous journalists, as well as the obscure who found success elsewhere. The paper's alums, the rival Chicago Tribune summarized in its obituary of the Daily News, included scores of lesser-known door kickers. Ernest Hemingway's brother Lester and future wife Mary Welsh worked there briefly. So did George Went and Martha Minow and John Chancellor, who all were copy clerks. Went later held down a corner of the bar at the TV hit, Cheers. Minow became dean of Harvard Law School. Chancellor anchored NBC's nightly newscast. Lester decided to found his own nation on a barge anchored off Jamaica. He killed himself Hemingway fashion by gunshot. But oh, the deeds of the famous, 102 years worth the foreign correspondents, the sports writers, the 15 Pulitzer Prizes, the best practitioner of all, columnist Mike Royko, reporter and editorial writer Lois Willey, stylist M.W. Bill Newman, globetrotter Georgie Ann Geyer, war reporters Kai's Beach, George Weller, Ray Coffey, Larry Green, Washington Bureau Chief Peter Lizagor, Carl Sandburg, the Lincoln biographer and poet, Hog Butcher for the World, City of the Big Shoulders. And yes, he covered labor and wrote film reviews for the Daily News. Another famous poet, Eugene Field, had a column called Sharps and Flats. Ben Hecht wrote a column called A Thousand and One Afternoons. 
he became one of Hollywood's greatest screenwriters. His view of newspapers eventually grew jaded. He explained in one novel, the press is a blind old cat yowling on a treadmill. Blind the Daily News was not. It turned an unblinking and unsentimental eye on the wrongs and rights of the world. It cared about what readers wanted to know. Even more, it cared about what they needed to know. The newspaper game went thus. We started each day with waist-high rolls of blank paper and ended with a precisely folded, indexed, copyrighted volume of the day's history written in a rush. A small miracle each day. The way we saw journalism was straightforward. You had to give readers what they needed to know, civics, budgets, policy, science, business, sports, along with an entertaining sprinkle of what they wanted, gossip, celebrities, comics, the horoscope. You did it with accuracy, balance, and clarity, the ABCs. An error in print was corrected in print. You listened to readers when they called, and call they did constantly. We had a lighted bank of 12 extensions that blinked like a holiday tree at Macy's. News tips, praise for a writer, vicious criticism. If we were called communist by one caller and fascist by the next, and we were, it was an honor. If both extremes hated us, we must be doing things right. The stories had to read well. Feebly or not, everyone tried to write literature on deadline as well as history on the run. The first sentence, the lead, was paramount at the Daily News. For instance, Jay Bashinsky began his 1973 story on the end of the Yom Kippur War, I prayed at the Wailing Wall. Combined with Bushinsky's surname, that said it all. The epic rewrite man, Edwin Leahy, supposedly wrote of the final stabbing of a murderer by an inmate. Richard Loeb, a brilliant college student and master of the English language, today ended a sentence with a proposition. Or so the legend goes, researchers haven't been able to find an edition where it appeared. Maybe a cowardly editor changed it. Maybe Leahy never wrote it at all, but the point was, he could have. And why did we spell it lead, L-E-D-E, to distinguish the word from lead, which was the way you added white space in the days of printing with words made of lead? The newsroom itself was vast and open. No pods, no cubby holes, metro editor at the center, sports, called the toy department, and business at the corners. A wall of south windows overlooked the river and provided a smidgen of the lake. It was the best view in the city, but seldom did anyone have time to look. Toward deadline, the noise rose to the level of heavy traffic on Michigan Avenue outside. Four dozen manual typewriters clattering, many pounded by two index fingers. Phones ringing everywhere. Reporters shouting copy to summon a youngster to dash with three paragraphs to the metro desk. Moving belts overhead sent copy to the news desk and down a hole to the typesetters. The belts ran on greased pulleys and wore out constantly, shedding particles that left editors with black dandruff on their shoulders. Unused material was spiked, literally jammed with force on a paper spike at the metro desk. You had to hold the paper just so, with the spike emerging through your two longest fingers. And every week or so, some editor spiked his own hand. Cigar and cigarette ashes were tapped onto the linoleum floor. Butts were ground out under a heel. Every week at 8 p.m. or so, a cleaning crew came in, put all the chairs on the desk, and swabbed down the whole room. 
The Night City editor and rewriters had to dodge the cleaners, whom they derided as the mad moppers. When computers arrived in the mid-1970s, the filth and the noise eased a bit, and suddenly you could hear the guy behind you arguing with his divorce attorney. But the phone still rang nonstop. People shouted and laughed. Piles of press releases still toppled off desks. It took years more for newsrooms to settle into the quiet of an insurance company. The Daily News had five deadlines a day, which seems nothing in today's era of 24-hour news. Elsewhere, you could work on a paper in a medium-sized city and have just a single deadline each day. Deadline in any print newspaper means a quiet frenzy of plate-making, a dull roar of paper ruling through a press, insert machines, belts pushing stacks toward a platoon of trucks, drop-offs at distribution points, and finally, a soft thwack in somebody's driveway. Today, a healthy chunk of paid circulation flies onto the Internet an article at a time as editors tap publish. It's better for the readers, and automation has freed editors of some of the headaches of printing on paper. Our Blue Streak edition opened the day, reaching streets at about 8 a.m., followed by the Red Flash, a home delivery edition that arrived between 2 and 5 p.m., often delivered by an after-school kid on a bicycle. Then came the big one, the Red Streak, which was a street sales edition for train commuters. In its final markets replayed the Triple Streak, Metro editor Bob Schultz liked to say, to me, it's a daily miracle that all this happens. We start with blank paper, and a few hours later, somebody drops a finished paper on my desk, warm from the press. Late in the day came the state edition, which went to press about 7 p.m. and into trucks headed for Peoria, Springfield, and Bergs that few people have heard of. Editors had no knowledge of where the state edition's readers lived. Circulation numbers, typically fading during the 1970s, were too secret to share with the staff. So editors shoveled stories into the state edition in hopes that somebody out there in Duck's Breath, Illinois, might be interested. All those editions were booned to a reporter handling a running story. He could update it five times. Today, she can freshen a story endlessly, as long as she works where there's no ink, no paper, no press room, no delivery trucks, no newsboys, no newsstands. That's a plus accompanied by less advertising and lower salaries. Prior to the Internet, news was all about beating the direct competition, another giant newspaper with identical deadlines. It was about retaining readers and trying to find new readers to replace those lost to television news and inertia. Promotion was goofy until newspapers sobered up in the 1980s. Up until then, any stunt seemed to make sense. Contests, radio jingles, coupons, toy trucks... Readers who bought the paper from newsstands had to be educated about all those additions through tactics dreamed up by the promotion department. Once, to help acclimate the readers, the Daily News staged a cross-country race by homing pigeons named Blue Streak, Red Streak, and Triple Streak. Breathless reports of their progress appeared in the paper until one pigeon went missing. The rival afternoon paper, The American, parodied the event by writing about a pigeon called Losing Streak. Atop this daily miracle was the editor of the Chicago Daily News. He ruled the newsroom as well as the editorial page, with minimal interference by owners. He operated the newsroom through the managing editor, who bossed sub-editors and had nothing to do with editorial opinion. Who the editor was could make a major difference at a paper. Take, for instance, Basil Stuffy Walters, a folksy small-town Indiana type who had served in the Ambulance Corps in World War I and understood newspapering backwards and forward. 
as vice president of the night newspaper chain and then editor of the Daily News until 1961, he oversaw a circulation growth of 40%. Once, the legend goes, research inspired him to tell staff members that if a news story sentences averaged 12 words, the story would be more readable. Shortly thereafter, a rewrite man crafted a story with each sentence 12 words long. When the edition came off the press, Stuffy stormed out of his office, waving a still warm copy. Who wrote this story, he yelled. It's terrible. Stuffy was succeeded by Tom Collins. Like Walters, a native of elsewhere, a debonair man with a Piedmont accent. When I interned in the sports department during college, he summoned me to his office at the end of the summer to bid farewell. I hadn't done anything to merit an audience with the paper's top editor, so perhaps he was simply glad that I was leaving. Wherever you go, remember, he drawled, the sun never sets on the daily news. In a sense, he was correct. The paper had correspondence in London, Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and Latin America. It had Georgie Ann Geyer, who went anywhere there was an airport. The paper even had a full-time outdoor editor who spent most days away from the city hunting and fishing. He eventually moved to Ely, Minnesota, married a Chippewa, and became an outfitter for canoe trips. After Walters came Roy Fisher, who had been a star on the city desk before going off to the World Book Encyclopedia, a subsidiary, and then returning to head the whole newspaper. He was a genial, handsome fellow with bright white hair, and evidently a talent for politicking or placating executives in upper management who were long on accounting but short on newspapering. Low-level reporters called him the Silver Fox. In summer of 1968, Daily News reporters fanned out to cover the Democratic National Convention, the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, and the police riots. During that week, Fisher bolstered the reporting squad on the middle watch, 4 p.m. to midnight, with anybody who could run. In other words, the youngest guys on the staff. Each night we ran around with notepads, got tear-gassed, and sometimes, whether by police batons or protesters, rocks and bottles, we were injured. One night early in the convention week, Nearly two dozen journalists, mostly cameramen, were bloodied. When we reported for work the following afternoon, the Silver Fox summoned us to his office. On the windowsill, he had half a dozen helmets, iridescent blue and cone-shaped. They weren't football helmets. They weren't motorcycle helmets. They weren't the Duomos that women wore at the hairdressers. They were nothing we had ever seen. He didn't say where he got them. You're going to wear these tonight, said the fox. I don't want you to get hurt. After a period of hesitant silence, someone explained that both sides, police and protesters, hated the press right then for the inconvenient facts we were printing. In a few hours by nightfall, we would be under attack yet again by both sides. Batons for police, rocks and bottles for rioters. Those weird helmets would make us targets. So all of, but one of us left Fisher's office unhelmeted. The one who did wear a helmet was memorialized by our photographer. The glossy photo with our colleague looking silly in coat and tie and helmet, pointing and yelling, circulated later on for the amusement of the office. Months earlier, a managing editor had arrived as deputy to Fisher. He was Darrell M. Feldmeyer a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of St. Olaf College who became beloved during the tail end of the life of the Daily News. When Fisher departed to run the journalism school at the University of Missouri, Feldmeyer stepped into the top job. Like Walters, he had won his spurs at a major paper in Minneapolis. 
large in the upper body. He had a shuffling walk, a chewing gum habit, and an uncontainable sense of fairness. On his left cheek was a two-inch long scar. None of us knew how it got there. We were afraid to ask. He was endlessly calm and unflustered amid the hottest of news stories. His arrival reinvigorated esprit de corps and raised morale during the 1970s, despite the paper's calamitous decline in subscriptions and advertising. He invariably went to lunch at Ricardo's on Rush Street with John Fischetti, who had won the newspaper a Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning. Feldmeyer's journey toward Ricardo's entailed a shuffling zigzag from his office through the newsroom, bantering reporters bent over their keyboards, asking what was going on. Finally, he arrived at the Metro desk, where young assistants were beavering away for the Red Streak edition, half an hour to deadline. What's going on? What do you know, he'd ask. We might have the indictment of another alderman, the young editors might answer. We might have City Hall giving more business to a crony. He'd nod. Measure twice, then saw, he'd say, and off to lunch. Too soon, he retired to Mexico. A new editor redesigned the paper. Readers hated it. Circulation plummeted. The Daily News, beset by the difficulties facing afternoon papers everywhere, died in 1978. On that day, the main headline read, So Long, Chicago. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.